And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a high school social studies teacher and a middle and high school principal. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I've been at it for 15 years, and this is All the Above, a show that brings you an unstandardized take on education today because major media outlets don't really take too much time to discuss our schools. But we know you care about education in America, so we're here for you. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you. Please remember to hit that thumbs up and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening to the podcast on the go, we appreciate you. Um, make sure you check out our website or our YouTube channel, though, for all of our extras and links to the stories and uh, studies that we reference. So that's AOTAshow.com. For this episode, Jeff, what's on the agenda? Well, man, well, as always, we got a good one for folks. Um, for today's main segment, we have an assessment from mm. yours truly. Mm. We're going to dig into some big, big topics. Uh, topics that, that, quite frankly, I think... Um, are the kind that both make people feel hope and inspiration and hopelessness and like the system is never going to change. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to walk that fine line today. We're going to talk about how did we get to be in 2019 and still have a separate and unequal school system here in America. So we're going to we're going to explore that topic today. Race, gonna, Jeff, more identity politics, Jeff. Identity politics. Fake news. My goodness. The more you talk about racism, the more it like exists. Well, yes, it's see, it's reverse racism. See, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. You're the racist for bringing up racism. All exactly. The time. If you just wouldn't talk about it, it wouldn't exist. It's like Candyman. You say his name, he pops up. Stop Re- saying his name, it don't right. pop up. That's right. That's Damn. right. All right. So <laughs> up first, though, is our Do Now segment where we take a look at recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. Time for our do now. Let's take a look at some headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the do now today? Well, Manuel, uh, it's report card time. We got, time. Uh, we need some grades. We got to see how everybody's doing out there. Oh, man, my mom's going to be upset. I know. I told you you got to get home before the mail man, comes, man. Just check it online, and it's just like, <laughs> I can't beat it, man. Uh, it's a different world. All right, so let's world. check out our first grade for today. Our first grade is, oh, it's a standards aligned Below basic. Mm. It's hard out there. It is quite hard out there. Yeah. This is below basic as in the level of preparation teachers in California have had for this new science test that's being delivered right now as we speak. Yeah. California students are in the midst of test taking season. And one of the tests that California students are taking this time around is a new science test based on the next generation science standards. So the next generation science standards were adopted in 2013 to replace California's previous science standards, which were from 1998 back in the day. Mm. And these new standards begin in kindergarten and emphasize critical thinking over rote memorization. These have been adopted by 19 states and California's science test is considered one of the more rigorous science tests out there. The thing, though, is that a lot of students who are taking the test have not had that elementary grade level instruction in science 
that the test or that the new standards call for. And a lot of teachers administering the test don't yet have standards aligned textbooks and materials to go along with the next generation science standards. Jeff, talk to us. Yeah, so I think you've laid out some very important uh, contextual information here. Uh, now, as someone who thinks that, uh, you know, the next generation of science standards in and of themselves mm -hmm. are a good thing, like, I, you know, I've read through them. Uh, I think they are a, a rigorous and, and uh, discipline appropriate way to approach the learning and teaching of, of the sciences uh, throughout the K-12 spectrum. Uh, but I, there's just a huge question in my head is, uh, around why we're administering this assessment when we know for a fact that almost no teachers in the state of California have been teaching standards aligned curriculum. Right. Right. So I get sometimes there's like a, you know, um, there's a delay, right? It takes time for textbook companies to prepare and publish. Science and social studies happen to be the more controversial yeah. uh, curriculum development subjects because, yeah. frankly, you have like, you know, uh, folks in more conservative states who want to teach religion instead of science. Right. Uh, and so I get that there's a process for that. Yeah. But what's the rush to administer this test with any type of stakes or public accountability when we know for a fact people haven't been teaching standards aligned curriculum? Like yeah. students' ability to be successful on this exam is by definition compromised because they haven't been exposed yeah. to all the content, right? And to the, to the instruction that is going to equip them to do what is being asked on this assessment. So right. I, I don't understand. Yeah, and students in, in grade five will be taking this test and there's been such a, well, the students in grade five and grade eight and, and high school students would be taking this test, but at the elementary level, um, there's been such an emphasis on math and English instruction that elementary teachers have been spending uh, roughly three times as much time teaching uh, math and English language arts than they have any science. So a lot of these students are gonna sit down in front of this test, which is a computer-based test and um, be asked to um, show their learning on things that they haven't really had any time to learn or haven't, you know, who have, haven't had any exposure to materials um, based on these standards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, it's a, it's a legit issue. Like I think the results around this exam are going to be open to just, just huge scrutiny, right? right. Um, students have not been prepared to be successful on this exam. And that's because teachers have not been prepared and supported to, teach in a way that's going to help students be successful on this exam, whether that's providing time for science instruction mm -hmm. at the elementary level. Keep in mind, our elementary teachers have already uh, experienced and are still in, in the midst of, um, you know, the, the shifts to much more rigorous assessments and right. uh, instructional expectations in uh, English language arts and in math. And now they're also layering on top of that science and eventually uh, history and social studies. So, you know, our elementary educators are put in a really difficult position here, yeah. right? Um, let alone the difficult position our secondary educators are in right. with this. So, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we're pushing forward, but I also can't help but feel like we're about to get a bunch of really bad data um, about, about yeah. our state. True. And about that. <laughs> So Trish Williams, who served on the California State Board of Education from 2011 to uh, 2018, she's quoted as saying, because we have softened our, accountab our accountability system, it isn't like any school would get in trouble for low scores. Hopefully, it would motivate them. So maybe seeing these results and seeing this data as ugly as it is sure to be, uh, 
maybe that would be motivation. Maybe. And in some cases, you know, maybe there's a good argument to be made that like, let's take it and like, just see where we are. Mm. And then we can only go uphill from here. And that can, that can be helpful. Um, so, you know, I, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but I can imagine some of the frustration of teachers who are oh, working really hard and wanting to do their best. Right. And especially our secondary content expert science teachers who are like, yeah, uh, you know, getting hit with this with this yeah. rough data about their practice that, um, you know, may or may not be fair in the, in the yeah. grand scheme of things. And account accountability may be softer than it was um, in the No Child Left Behind era, but that doesn't mean individual teachers aren't feeling the heat um, that comes from having um, um, weak test scores coming back from their students um, based on their own uh, school side or administrative uh, situation. So um, it's soft, but not soft for that individual teacher who's facing yeah. us. Yeah. All right. All right. On to our next grade. On to our next grade. Here we go. Our next grade is an A plus. As Ooh. in, you might need to have a really high set of A pluses on your transcript in order to get into schools like Cal State LA. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, here's the story. Um, Cal State Los Angeles is on the verge of becoming um, what's called a fully impacted school. Uh, this means that um, each year at Cal State LA, there are thousands more students who apply to the school um, than the campus has funding or space to accommodate. Um, and as a result, campus officials are looking to potentially declare, declare this impacted status, which would mean that they essentially cap um, admissions to the school. There are several other Cal states across the state um, that have already declared fully impacted status. Mm -hmm. And this also means not only is the whole school uh, full, but like each individual academic program within the school is right. full, right? Um, and as a result, officials are considering a plan for 2020 that would raise admission standards and shrink that fall of 2020 class. So, now, well, um, what's going on here? Yeah, well, this is, you know, for those who don't teach in California, um, the California State University system has 23 campuses. And of those 23, there already are six that have declared this impacted status. In Cal State LA, um, we mentioned it a few episodes back when we were talking about graduation rates in um, Cal State University system. Cal State LA, like a lot of Cal States, is seen as a system, particularly for disadvantaged students, students who's, uh, who are first generation or students uh, who don't come from an affluent background. And, and the Cal State system is really a place where one could pursue higher education and, and lift themselves up out of poverty, so to speak. And this plan, uh, critics of the plan, a lot of uh, faculty members and students and alumni say this plan actually uh, pushes that further out of reach for uh, students coming from a marginalized background. So it's something that uh, could do undue harm, particularly to uh, students' marginalized backgrounds. But it's also, I think, sort of a, um, not a side effect, but one of those um, outcomes of this new like college for all push as a college degree is seen as becoming more and more vital to any basic career field or profession. And now we have more and more students going, but we don't really have the space for that. We haven't built the capacity for all these students. So well, we built some prisons though. We, we have built some prisons and <laughs> yeah. we've hired some private contractors to house yeah. inmates. Yeah, we sure got money for that. Man, plenty. Here, here in California, especially. Yeah, plenty. So, so I don't know, this is, this is I, I'm on the side of looking at this as, as being quite troubling. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think uh, for those who don't know who are outside of uh, of California, maybe don't know the Los Angeles area, mm -hmm. Cal State LA is located in East LA, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a university that's in a historically uh, Latino community yeah. um, and uh, you know a relatively low income area uh, in general, right? right? And so you have this university being geographically placed in a very convenient area for a certain population, a certain set of folks, right? Um, it's one of two Cal States that I think are, are really like that in LA. Mm -hmm. um, Cal State Dominguez Hills being the other one, which is right next to Compton, right next to Watts, um, and serves, you know, kind of more the, the South Los Angeles community in that regard. But these are schools that are geographically conveniently located to, you know, some low income areas in the city that are easier for people to get to, to like live nearby, commute to campus and work and not have to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours commuting every day. Right. right. Um, so the idea that this type of uh, raising of academic standards, limiting of the size of an incoming class, uh, and essentially excluding more people in an effort to uh, both respond to some budget pressures for the school, but also in this effort to raise graduation rates for the school yeah, over yeah. time, right? Um, feels to me like a maybe an unintended negative harm that's being passed on to the community right. um, because of the pressure that that these schools are facing now. And not that that pressure is bad, but we have to we have to say like where are these this the six hundred fewer students who are gonna be in the fall of 2020 class at Cal State LA, what's gonna to happen to those right. 600 fewer students? Right. Like, where are, they, where are they gonna get their opportunity? Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, provost of Cal State LA, Lynn Mahoney, uh, she says the university's hands are tied. Uh, she points to the fact that enrollment at Cal State LA has increased by 25% since 2012, but actual funding has only gone up about 2%. So the, ca the campus already serves over 5,000 more full-time students than uh, it currently has the capacity for. Um, but I don't think this is the right approach for that. Clearly something has, has to be done, but making it harder to get in and further disenfranchising folks isn't um, the right solution. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, there was a comment from Antoinette Sadler, who's a member of the Black Student Union at Cal State LA, uh, that really sums this up nicely, I thought. She said, um, you want to raise your requirements such as SAT scores, but black and brown communities, we don't get the resources to obtain the scores you all want from us. Um, so, yeah, like I'm I'm fine with raising <laughs> expectations as long as supports are raised right, exactly. with those expectations. So either we need a lot coming into our school system to get kids uh, even more ready to meet those expectations or we need opportunities and places for these students to enter into the Cal State system. And if the reality is Cal State LA is just full, okay, well, how about, you know, Cal State downtown Los Angeles? Yeah, exactly. Cal State Hollywood. I don't Cal know. Cal State but. part two, the sequel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One last grade. Let's check out this last one. Um, bad news, Jeff. Mm, mm. Bad news. Yep. We've got an F. Mm. All right. So this F is in reference to our society failing when it comes to addressing the problem of homelessness throughout the nation. According to new federal data, we have seen a 70, 70% jump in K-12 homelessness over the last decade. So new data that was recently released shows that we had 1.3 million public school students who experienced homelessness during their 2016 
through 2017 school year, which is a 7% increase over the last three years, but again, a 70% increase since the beginning of the Great Recession. Children are considered homeless if they lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. This includes children who reside in shelters or cars or campgrounds because they lack alternatives. But this also includes families who double up and live with another family because of economic hardship or loss of housing. Now that, that, that category of homelessness, so families who double up with another family because of uh, economic disadvantage, that accounts for 76% of student homelessness during the school year 2016 through 17. Meanwhile, 14% of homeless youth resided in shelters and another 6% lived in hotels and motels and 4% were identified as unsheltered, which itself is a 27% increase over a three-year period. Jeff, bad grade here. Yeah, uh, it's an appropriately bad grade. Uh, I, I don't know who exactly gets this grade, um, but I know- Society. I, yeah, society. Uh, and I know this is not what uh, making America great again uh, could possibly look like. There you go with your liberal um, left. That's right, that's right. Uh, fake news, everyone. Fake news. Uh, so here's what I think about this. We have a problem that we know is a problem, but that a lot of people don't recognize is a problem. Because a lot of people think homelessness and they think, you know, a, a very disheveled person who yeah. might be, you know, pushing a shopping cart, like dirty, right. smelly, sleeping on the street, right? And that is certainly a major problem, right? right? Particularly for those of us who live here in Southern California, right? right. Um, but the reality is as homelessness impacts schools, it usually does not look that way, right? It's usually yeah. not a kid who comes to school looking like they just slept on a park bench last night, right? right? It's a kid who slept in their car with their family last night or who's been on their grandmother's couch and tomorrow is gonna have to go to their aunt's house. And you know, because their aunt lives on the other side of town, they now are gonna be an hour late to school and miss Mr. Russin's first period and that hurts right. their grade and first period and they miss breakfast and so they're hungry, right? It's that kind of stuff that is what homelessness looks like in schools in a way that um, a lot of people don't see, right? Um, and you know, this I think is, is the more insidious part about this issue, which is we have known and seen for a while that this data is creeping in a, in a negative direction, but we haven't really done much to address it, right? Um, you know, the, the lingering effects of the recession, um, you know, putting a lot of families who are kind of on the brink in a much more vulnerable position, we haven't addressed that. And we're seeing the impacts of this with students, you know, depressed wages, housing instability, that, uh, you know, set of people who was right on the line before right. that kind of stuff hit and has verged over now into, you know, a real precarious position. Right. So there's an organization that um, works to address homelessness um, in, throughout education. It's called Schoolhouse Connection. And their executive director, Bar Barbara Duffield, said that these numbers could partially be attributed to better data, better tracking, better uh, counting of uh, students who experience homelessness because, as you correctly pointed out, um, it's tough to identify these students um, on a face-to-face -face basis because we have this sort of perception of what homelessness looks like. And as a teacher, uh, you know, a student's not going to necessarily walk up to me and say, hey, I don't have a stable place to live. So the identification part is, is difficult. So she says the, the increase uh, shown in these numbers might partially be due 
to, um, to better identification. However, the bigger, uh, more obvious uh, causes are, of course, the, the housing crisis, the opioid crisis, and just in general, uh, continued lack of, of livable wage um, across the U.S., despite what uh, employment numbers uh, might show, or despite unemployment being at a record low or what have you. As a teacher, this, you know, this, again, just it's another reminder of the, the complex challenges that students are dealing with outside yeah. of my classroom that totally affects their performance inside of my classroom. Homeless youth, according to the Department of Ed, um, see a graduation rate of about 64% um, during the years of, of these numbers. So 64% graduation rate for students who experience homelessness during the 2016 or 2017 school year as compared with the national average that year of 84%. So that's a 20% gap right there. And um, as you correctly pointed out, um, you know, this sh just shows the, the, the critical need to really address uh, these issues and really address the challenges that come with living really right on that, that edge, that borderline. Yeah, I think this issue really dramatizes the intersectional nature, nature of, uh, of these uh, social challenges that mm -hmm. we have, right? Um, if you're someone who maybe doesn't find yourself all that motivated by homelessness, right? Well, if you care about kids and you care about schools and you care about democracy, then you better care about homelessness because the things that are impacting students' ability to function and succeed well in school are things like homelessness, right. are things like health care, right? So you might hear about issues like $15 minimum wage and, you know, Medicare for all and think, well, that's lefty, you know, liberal stuff. And, I, you know, I don't like that. Um, when that boils down to human beings, that's mm -hmm. about homeless kids in school, right? right? That's about young people who deserve a chance and we can do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. We had an episode last season about uh, supporting our foster youth, for example, as, as one particular subset of students um, who uh, may be experiencing um, um, a lack of, of stable long-term housing. So check that out um, for more information about particularly foster youth uh, and where they fit into, into this picture. Um, but again, go to our, our website, AOTA Show, to get links to these articles yourself because there, there's a lot to it. This, re, this um, report, we'll link it on our website. And um, this is a, a legitimate F that we just handed out. And, you know, I, I hope that our very educated, motivated audience will dig into the details and, and do what they can to be advocates for homeless youth and all youth um, in their school and in their districts and in their communities. Yeah. All right, folks, that does it for today's Do Now. Up next is our assessment. If I told you that at some point in history, America had two school systems, separate and unequal, you might think I'm talking about the America of the 1940s. But what if I told you that I'm not talking about the 1940s, I'm talking about today. We have ample data to suggest that today, in 2019, we have regressed to maintaining parallel school systems in this country that are separate and unequal. How did we get here? Well, let's take a quick walk down memory lane. In 1892, there was a famous Supreme Court case called Plessy versus Ferguson. It's widely considered one of the worst decisions the court has ever handed down. Segregation and things like train cars and schools was legalized with the idea that separation of the races doesn't confer any badge of inferiority to the colored race, so long as the accommodations were essentially equal. Now, 
Everyone knew that they would not be equal, but the court ruled this way anyhow. Then, fast forward a half century, and in 1954, the court handed down one of its most celebrated cases in history, Brown versus Board of Education. This case overturned Plessy and declared segregation inherently unequal and is considered the judicial backbone of much of the civil rights movement. So, what the heck happened? How do we go from a Supreme Court ruling telling us we had to integrate schools to 60 years later having schools that are as racially isolated as ever and with obvious inequality in funding, resources, facilities, and staffing? How is it that in a nation where education is always touted as the most important vehicle for opportunity, that we have such obvious structural barriers to equality baked into our schools? The answer has three parts. Geographic school districts, property taxes, and Detroit. Let's start at the top. In America, education is considered a state responsibility. That means states decide upon things like standards and graduation requirements, and they authorize the operation of local schools by districts. But over the last 75 years, as suburbs grew and Americans began to segregate more residentially, states authorized many new school districts that were segregated as a result. This was, of course, accomplished largely with racist practices that kept black people and people of color in general trapped in poorer communities with lower property values. School districts became not just politically drawn boundaries between communities, but racially segregated boundaries through which children would not be able to pass to attend school. Now that brings us to our next item on the list, property taxes. In America, about 45% of school funding comes from local property taxes. Wealthy communities with high property values can tax themselves at relatively low rates and generate large revenues to fund their schools. Sometimes, right next door or even across the street, a poorer community with low property values might have to tax itself at higher rates and still not generate equal dollars for school funding let alone the additional dollars it takes to meet the needs of students struggling with poverty. And this brings us to our final point, the city of Detroit. Almost everyone in America has heard of Brown versus Board of Education, but almost no one has heard of a case that happened 20 years later and began the systematic dismantling of efforts to integrate schools and that laid the foundation for, of our return to a system of legalized, separate, and unequal schools. In the early 1970s, meaningful integration within the Detroit public schools was almost impossible. The schools were so overwhelmingly black that in order to achieve any integration, the state would need to consider integrating schools across district lines, where wealthy white communities had formed separate school districts just outside the city. The folks suing the state to integrate won in federal court and won in the U.S. Court of Appeals. But in a five to four decision called Milliken versus Bradley, the Supreme Court ruled that the solution to integrate schools in the Detroit metropolitan area was not permissible. Since those districts had no history of Jim Crow-like legalized segregation, they could not be mandated to integrate across district lines. This decision meant that as residential segregation flourished over the, over the last 50 years, there would be no legal remedy 
to the return of separate and unequal schools between wealthy and poor districts, even if they were right next door to one another. So that brings us to the big question of today. In an era where education is more important than ever, where it is positively associated with everything from lifetime earnings to lifespan itself, what do we do to address the fundamental inequalities in this new separate and unequal educational world? Jeff, I appreciate your comments there. Um, in particular, I appreciate that you're able to sort of lay out the history of how we got here in really simple terms, because a lot of times as educators, as people uh, who are uh, really interested in education, education matters, we get so lost in the minutia of um, each report that comes out showing inequitable funding or problematic curriculum that uh, a lot of times sort of just the general historic framing of how we got here is either lost or, you know, people might really might not really know much about it. So the step by step way that you laid it out, I definitely appreciate that myself as an educator um, to the general question about like, what do we do about this? Uh, that's sort of, that's something that I've been sort of grappling with personally in my 15th year of teaching. Mm -hmm as I sort of become a lot more, I guess, pessimistic about what schools are gonna look like in the future, given how long they have looked um, the way they do now in terms of their racial segregation. Um, I'm beginning to be of the belief that the problem is so much larger than the school systems. When we talk about segregated schools, obviously we gotta talk about segregated housing and the, the long history of racially segregated housing patterns that continues in different ways today. So obviously we go into the history of redlining, the history of you know racial housing covenants. So we teach in the Los Angeles area and the demographics of LA and the way uh, different neighborhoods are made up. It's not by accident. There's a long history of you know uh, housing patterns that develop South LA um, in the way that it is today, for example. But that history is so long and, 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 and so extensive. And then we think about Add, add white flight and add gentrification and add all these other things like housing in my belief is going to remain segregated for long after I'm gone and that has me thinking about schools and whether or not the school system itself is going to be the the place where that mm. gets resolved if that yeah. makes any sense yeah that makes a lot of sense um, and I think the more I have thought about this issue the more mm -hmm. I um, I understand and on a certain level share your pessimism right so thanks for joining us today folks been a good episode <laughs> uh, <laughs> done. <laughs> done it's a wrap uh, it's hopeless uh, let's all go home no uh, I share the pessimism but I also right. I think I also have kind of a um, a in some ways a like an undying sense of optimism in the you know in the sort of uh i'm glad somebody king, does kingian philosophy uh -huh. of the you know the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice right mm -hmm. and uh we have we we have experienced a, a multiple decades long period of sort of regression right, uh, right. a major milestone win with brown versus board of education some initial movement towards integration and towards greater equality and, and mm -hmm. equity and then a pretty systematic walking back uh, right. of all of that and um you know it's not that there hasn't been resistance or hasn't been folks really mobilizing to uh to continue the march towards mm -hmm. a more just future but um but the other side has has been more effective uh frankly right. um and 
there is a part of me that says maybe the maybe the the battleground, uh, like mm. maybe the theater of this battle needs to shift from one that has focused more on integration um, mm. to one that actually borrows some of the strategy from uh, from the earlier civil rights movement, right? The the legal cases that set the groundwork for. Uh, for Brown versus Board of Education, a, a significant number of them mm. were really about raising the costs of a separate and right. equal society, right? So, okay, if we're going to be separate, then what does equal actually require, right? So if we're going to have schools um, that are, you know, wealthy, well-funded in, uh, you know, Santa Monica, Malibu, mm. or in uh, Beverly Hills, and right next door, we have schools in Los Angeles Unified School Districts that are, um, you know, dramatically uh, have dramatically lower funding and poorer resources, um, then maybe we need to actually take up the mantle and say like, okay, we have separate schools mm -hmm. and we're not going to fight that front. We're going to say, let's make right. them equal. And what does equal actually look like, right? Um, in places where we have concentrated poverty, concentrated exposure to traumatic experiences and those sorts of things, that means we need you know, even more resources than the than the wealthier communities get. And right. in some cases, by many orders of magnitude, to hire right. the counseling, mental health professionals, to lower class size ratios, all of that kind of stuff, right? And how are we going to get there, though? That's the thing. When you think about how much is required to really have the separate be equal, yeah, that's, you know, study after study comes out that shows the, what was it, $223 billion more that went Tw to... 23. 23 billion, yeah, yeah. 223, that's a lot. 23 <laughs> still a lot though. 23 yeah. billion more that went to districts predominantly serving white students than students of color. Like to shift that, uh, the, the size of that shift that would have to happen when we look at the actual funding policies and tying funding to property taxes and all that, um, that's where my, my pessimism grows because um, that's just a tall, tall ass when you look at how long we've been struggling with this as a nation. You don't think we can rely on the goodwill of our wealthy and uh, white neighbors you know what the thanks to those tax cuts maybe you know some of that is trickling down um you know it trickles down and stops first at the private yacht industry yes but then what's left maybe will trickle down i to think some, i think you know, we should take jeff bezos shoes. and warren buffett's couches and just turn them upside down and shake them vigorously yes. and that'll that'll be enough loose change to fill the hey <laughs> man they won't even notice it's gone um, they wouldn't yeah, I mean, I think you're raising like a very fair mm -hmm. uh, point there, right? And and my optimism is not so blind as to, right, to right. recognize that like this is going to be really hard. I think what does give me some hope is that like it's not like it, folks in 1935 were looking at the situation and feeling like, man, yeah. we have a clear path to victory, right? Like that is true. Uh, they had a just as high, if not a much higher, mountain to climb, and. Um, I wonder if, it, if actually this opens up new possibilities for both litigation and actually mm. just like political mobilizing, right? Because right. if the reality is there's not necessarily political will for people to just integrate schools, right? right? Um, there might be more political will to do things like uh, create equitable funding. There might be more political will to do things like um, incentivize more diverse residential patterns in communities than currently exist, right? Um, things that over time will help create more, more integrated and more just, uh, you know, distribution of resources uh, in, in our schools. Yeah, but even, even with that, you know, I was at a school uh, recently where 
Um, it, it was a school that I guess you would consider most of their uh, community to be more on the affluent side. And they had several positions on their school staff fully funded by parent contributions. Their yeah. librarian, 100% fully funded by parent donations. Uh, their uh, computer um, technology teacher, fully funded. So even in the sense of legislating more equitable funding systems, there's still going to be that inherent inequality um, until the actual residential patterns are integrated. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what you're speaking to is the, the multi-pronged, like sort of holistic uh, approach with which we're going to have to view this, right? right. Um, that uh, I think there's a growing number of people who understand this uh, in our society, like um, particularly around the like sort of interesting nexus where the right and the, the political right and left have kind of mm -hmm. come to some agreement about mass incarceration being out of control. Well, thank you to right? President Trump. Finally, somebody came in. Well, Kim Kardashian, really. Yeah, uh, I mean. And Kanye. <laughs> hey. Uh, but I, in all seriousness, mm -hmm. right? Like this odd intersection Quite point odd. where the folks that. on the right are like, we don't really care about, you know, racism against black people and stuff, right. but we're spending all this money in all these prisons Right. We're we're locking up all these people for ridiculous, low level, nonviolent offenses. Right. Um, we're empowering this sort of overwhelming police state and they don't like that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And then folks on the left who are talking about, you know, racial justice and destroying families yeah. and communities and, and, you know, reparations and like that angle. Right. Right. Um, and I do wonder if there's a, like another um, unexpected intersection point. Right. Mm -hmm. Where the folks on the right are. Uh, you know, deeply committed to this idea, which some people might say currently is more mythology than real, um, but this idea that education should be the great giver of opportunity in our, in our mm. society, right? And so maybe there's a place where there's a, um, you know, some openness and some receptivity to this idea that um, we should make that vision a reality right. and that that's gonna take some some larger systemic changes right, right. Um, at the same time as folks from the left are pushing on like this is about justice and you know racial equality and all of that yeah yeah and you know uh, we had a guest uh, on the previous episode Siobhan Taylor who um, you know works in trauma-informed care and and one thing that she said in our one-on-one -on -one discussion was this idea about um, whether or not integration is even the goal to work towards because for one if it's integration in the curriculum still whitewashed or still a uh, dominant American, you know, dominant narrative, uh, traditional uh, instruction that doesn't really work for children of color, is that really the direction to go? And, you know, as a teacher whose students are primarily students of color, um, I'm starting to realize that, you know, my pessimism towards seeing integrated schools and seeing uh, equitable funding um, is driving me towards sort of like a, a, a not good place. So my response to that and my own way of sort of dealing with that in my profession that I love so much is just really focusing on the young men and women in my class. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have we have tours come through because, you know, my district happens to be open enrollment. And a lot of times the people on the tours look quite different than the, the young men and women uh, sitting in my class. And there's that ongoing discussion about the extent to which families want their children, white families want their children sitting amongst black and brown kids and, and I, I really hope that um, you know this this hope that you have for there being sort of a common uh, common spot for the right and left political right and left to meet um, on the topic of education on, on this issue I really hope that that's there 
But, you know, when you see studies like what we reported, I think two or three episodes ago about like just the, the racial bias behind the interpretation of the word urban and just like, yeah. it's just so pervasive, the problems and it's so, it's just, it just feels overwhelming to really think that this could be sorted out anytime soon. But that's why we have great leaders like you to keep the optimism <laughs> going. Don't worry, because, I, got, I got you. Man, leave it to me and it's just like, man, throw the whole system away. But well, I, I you know. know, I so there is I, I agree that mm -hmm. uh, in my mind, integration for the um, integration, as I think it became to some extent uh, mm -hmm. to, to be understood uh, about right. um, in the sort of you know initial wave of integration, 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. Um, became uh, for better or worse, this sort of like we need to have students of color in proximity to white students, yeah. right? And I think what was missed there was the real uh, point of integration. There's nothing that we need to get from white folks mm -hmm. by being next to them right. as a part of integration. What is needed is access to the resources mm -hmm. and uh, funding and the structures that provide positive experiences and privilege right um, to white students <laughs> in yeah. those schools and wealthier students in those schools needs to be accessible to all and in general i think in our society the things that everyone uses we tend to take pretty good care of right um, now you know there might be some exceptions right but like in general you go to our national parks you drive on our interstate highways you go to our airports like we have highly functional, well taken care of public infrastructure in those mm -hmm. spaces because everybody uses them, right? right? Um, and it's the places where you start to segregate and stratify that we really begin to see this erosion, hmm. right? So, so the one part of this to me that really does feel like integration is, is a valuable pursuit um, unto itself mm -hmm. is the idea that we, if we create things, more things as a public good, more schools, as a public good that we all use, we will take better care of them, right? Um, I don't have any illusion that like that's gonna happen tomorrow or next right. week or anytime soon, but I do think um, there, are, there are unnatural patterns of segregation that exist in our society, yeah. not because people are inherently, you know, um, have inherent malice towards others, mm. but because if you wanna live in a, you know, in a safe area, if you want to live in a place where the schools are better, right? Like you, yeah. you wind up behaving in a certain manner. Um, and so I think there's some things we can do to interrupt those patterns, right? That reinforce these systemic racism and inequity. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a book I read recently, The Color of Law. I'm sure a lot of our viewers have heard of it. Um, it sort of lays out sort of the history of the federal government's involvement in creating the racial housing patterns that we have today. And so I, I, I think about that because you, you use the word unnatural in terms of, you know, sort of these unnatural um, housing patterns. And, and they are there. And I think about, you know, the opportunity, the missed opportunity we had to, to um, allow for an integrated just society um, through reconstruction and beyond that sort of we dropped the ball. And when I say we dropped the ball, I mean, uh, you know, white American government dropped the ball on um, policymakers. But um, you know, hopefully there is room for addressing some of those ills of the past and bringing justice to those ills of the past because education, especially in a democracy, should be a public good. And as a public good, it should be something that uh, serves everybody and that everybody sees as sort of being a uh, inherent, fundamental, important part of 
being an American and being in our in our nation. Um, there are so many details to this conversation. So obviously, this is an ongoing conversation. In episode three, I believe it was, we talked about school choice and the the role that school choice plays in uh, reinforcing or addressing se uh, racial segregation. So go back to episode three if you missed that. And you know, this is one of those topics where pretty much everything else we discuss goes back to um, schools as inequitable systems or schools, uh, the school system is being inequitable and resources being inequitably distributed and the need to address that and do something about that. Yeah, and if that isn't enticing enough for you to go back to uh, episode three, mm -hmm. there's also a fantastic, if somewhat grainy picture of me in the fourth grade mm. with a outstandingly bad flat top that my dad cut uh, on top <laughs> of my head. <laughs> yeah. There's that. So, uh, so you can check that out too. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So that does it for um, this segment. Up next, we have our class dismissed. But let us know what you think. Um, I'm a little bit more of a pessimist on this. Let, let us know. Drop some comments below. Um, what do you think uh, needs to be done? What sort of work or steps need to be followed in order to address the school segregation that we have today? So drop those comments. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And up next is our class dismissed. All right, folks, it's time for Class Dismissed, a segment where we like to shout out people doing great work in education. And for this episode, we would like to shout out all of you teachers out there that are currently dealing with testing season. As reported during our Do Now, um, it's, it's that time of year where tests are being administered, some of them brand new tests, such as tests based on the next generation science standards. And we know that you know that your work and what you're doing with your students can't be measured by a simple test score. But nonetheless, you do what you can to prepare your students so that they can exhibit what they know and what they've learned. And we know it's a stressful time of year. We know it's a kind of frazzly time of year, but you're doing the great work in the classroom and you're showing your students that they are bigger and better than a test. And you're preparing them though to still do the best that they can. So we salute you, we see you. I'm dealing with the same thing myself. And you know what? It's, it's part of the job, I suppose. So shout out to you guys. Yeah, we also want to extend a shout out to all the educators across America. Um, this is that interesting time in the year when you get to like, you know, March, April, where it feels like, man, we have we have been in school for a long time. And then you look yeah. at the calendar and it feels like, man, we still have like a couple months to go. So uh, hang in there. Um, you know, we see you. We acknowledge the good work you're doing. I know for some folks, uh, spring break just happened. So I hope you're feeling rejuvenated and ready for the sprint to the finish line. For other folks, you're like trying to make it to spring break in a week huh. or two here and you too hang in there, uh, almost there and, uh, you know, enjoy your well-deserved time off. Indeed. All right, folks, remember, go to our YouTube channel for all the episode extras and in addition to previous one-on-one -on -one videos, all the previous episodes, my teacher vlog, Rustin's Room, and hit our website, aotashow.com for links to all the articles and studies that that we've mentioned. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.